0: Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is the Incredible Two Headed Podcast. Right, everybody, welcome back to the incredible Two-Headed Podcast. We are now returning to our regularly scheduled program of Summer in the Shadows. I know we had a couple of off weeks, a couple of, uh, a couple of episodes that didn't, didn't quite fit the normal tone of the show, but we're, we're back. We're going to be talking a lot about film noir today, and I'm very excited about the guests that we have. Um, so I'm just going to get right into it from the great film noir website. Uh, make mine film noir we have Marianne Labate. Marianne how are you doing today?
1: I am doing just great how about you Aaron?
0: I'm doing good I'm doing good Um, we talked about it a little bit but uh, just to get the listener up to date I I worked today at this this new job with the Plasters Guild and it was rough I mean, it was good. Like, the people were great. I didn't, like, there were no screw-ups. I didn't do anything bad. It wasn't, it was just, like, it was intense physical labor. And it's very hot. I was down in, in ba- just the desert, basically. Um, so I am not used to that. And it's going to be a, a little bit of an adjustment here. But I, right now, I'm home. I, I've been sitting a little while. I actually just re-watched the movie we're we're about to discuss. And so I am feeling good.
1: <laughs> I was going to ask how... how- I mean, I I suggested The Dark Corner because it was you know, one of my favorite movies, but had you seen it before I had suggested it?
0: Um, well, actually, you, you suggested both movies uh-huh. this week, and I had not seen either of them. Oh. I actually thought I had seen The Dark Corner, but then I once it started, I was like, oh, no, no, I have not seen this. But yeah, no, you, you, so... uh, well, well, we'll get to the movie discussion in just a minute. What, what I wanted to do is we... I kind of wanted to tell people how we know each other, because I think that's kind of relevant to the episode and to this whole month-long series. So I I thought of doing this Summer in the Shadows thing because I love film noir. I did a film noir episode with uh, past and future guest Jessica Scott, and it was so much fun. And I was like, I just love film noir. I want to do a series of film noir. Let's do it for summer. And I call it Summer in the Shadows. And it, it wasn't until a couple of weeks into it, I realized, wait a minute. I stole this entire thing from TCM's "Summer in" Dar- uh, what is it? "Summer in the Darkness." Yeah. Uh, that they did it six years ago now, and um, to go along with their summer-long noir programming, they had uh, an online course that was basically just you know you want to do some modules, you watch some clips, you discuss uh, in a lot of discussions and information about uh, like the history of film noir. It was so much fun. It was like the, I had just moved down here to California. I wasn't working yet full-time. And so I had so much time to watch these. I tracked down as much as I could off that list because I didn't have cable. I went to the library. I rented Netflix disc by mail. I would rent things on Amazon. I would, I I, I, like, I watched as much of it as I could and it was so much fun. And so we kind of know each other from that because we were both on the message boards. Um, Yes. What did you I mean, obviously, you really enjoyed the course you, you, you came out of it with the with this blog, but that, I remember that as being like just a ton of fun.
1: I enjoyed it immensely. And, um, but I, had, I liked film noir even before that I, um, but the class was still very informative. I, I do remember that. And it was a lot of fun tracking down the movies, just like you said, I did the same thing. And, um, when the course finished, it was in 2015, wasn't, you were right, six years ago already. And I decided to start the blog, um, make Mine film noir in September. In fact, the dark corner is the very first blog post I ever wrote.
0: Oh, I didn't, I didn't go back that far to see. That's really cool.
1: It, it uh, really made an impression on me, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll we'll talk about that because I, I can completely see that the the uh, I remember the Facebook page and the message boards were active for a little while, and then I think by September when you started your blog, I was working like full time. I, I I was I just kind of fell out of the the online discussion. Um, those those pages are still up there, the message boards, but they, they kind of the activity died away on them. After it hit me that I was stealing this idea from that, that, uh, the, from TCM, I went back to look at what movies we had discussed and just things that had been said about them. And when I logged in, there was a message from you telling me that you had started your film noir blog. And I was like, oh man, I feel really bad that I never saw this and I never replied. And I'm like, oh, you know, people start blogs all the time. And I don't know if it's still gonna be around, but then I went and looked at it and you had just published something, I think that day. And I was like, oh wow, she's been really keeping up on this. It's great. I have not had that sort of success with my own attempts at blogging, but uh but I looked at the movies, a lot of movies I hadn't seen, and you're writing pretty in-depth write-ups about them. It was really cool. And so I just decided like I would I would message you and uh we were talking and I asked you to be on the on the podcast, so here we are.
1: Yes, I'm glad you invited me.
0: Of course, I, I'm, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun and I, I really want to discuss, I'm looking forward to discussing both of the movies you brought today.
1: I'm looking forward to it too. And I, uh, I ha- mean, I re- actually have so many favorites. I have to admit, it was really hard for me to pick just two to talk about, but uh, it's well, like... I, I it's, would... the, it's like picking your favorite children, or <laughs> you, you can't do that, there are no favorite children.
0: Well, if you if you um, if this isn't putting you on the spot too much, at the end of the discussion, we haven't done it in a while. We used to do our top five lists, where we would like not our top five, but just like five we wanted to mention or talk about uh, movies okay. that kind of fit the the discussion that we've been having. So keep that in mind if you want to. <laughs> if you want to, at the end of the episode, I'll give you plenty of time if you want to like just rattle off a couple of others because I I will. I am always looking for a good recommendation.
1: Oh, I have plenty of those.
0: Uh, well, there that, that's a teaser then. We'll get to it. We'll get to okay. it here in, in about an, an hour and a half or so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, everybody out there listening, you're going to hear uh, a bit from the Dark Corner. And when we get back, we're going to be discussing it.
2: There goes my last lead. I feel all dead inside. I'm backed up in a dark corner. And I don't know who's hitting me. The exciting
0: story, The Dark Corner, which gripped the readers of Good Housekeeping magazine, now spins its fascinating plot on the screen. These are the players who bring you this widely discussed story of an obsession for beauty that becomes a passion for murder. He loathed her rather intimately,
2: I'm afraid.
0: But he couldn't. I mean, she's too old for him.
2: The Dark Corner dares to tell of those who can defy the rules of respectability and the hunted who must violate the law in order to live. What's his name? (laughs) paying you?
0: If you don't want to lose that
2: stardust look in your eyes, get going while the door's still open. You stick around here, you'll get grafters, shysters, two-bit thugs, and maybe worse, maybe me. I like those odds. I'll take them.
0: There goes my last lead. I feel all dead inside. I'm backed up in a dark corner, and I don't know who's hitting me. So says Mark Stevens as private investigator Bradford Galt, who finds himself framed for murder in this quintessential film noir from 1946. Now, as we already said, I had not seen this movie. I've now seen it twice in the last week in preparation for this, um, and this is one of your favorites. So, uh, I, I I will get back to that quintessential film noir statement. I, I, I kind of want to explain what I meant by that. But first, I want to hear what made you pick this one? Why, what makes this a favorite for you?
1: The first time I saw this film, it was um, a movie channel called Movies with an exclamation point. I think it's a broadcast over the air channel. And I, I think what really struck me was the dialogue. I thought it was very clever.
2: Mm, yeah. it,
1: wasn't, it wasn't exactly your typical noir banter. It it had um, I mean, the, the two main characters, Kathleen and Brad, are de- developing a relationship, but but their banter isn't like mean spirited. It's very clever. It's they're there, it's obvious that they're interested in one another. And it's kind that's kind of unusual for a film noir. There's no, uh, we should say that Kathleen is played by Lucille Ball.
2: Yeah, and
1: <laughs> she's wonderful in the film. It's not a comedic role for her though. But kind the, of,
0: kind of. She's got, she's got a good sense of humor.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe it's because I like baseball too. But she, there, that there was that whole metaphor about um, uh, her father being an umpire, and she uses a lot of baseball metaphors. Just sort of fend him off a little bit at the beginning, to fend off Brad a little bit at the beginning. Like she thinks she tells him that she, he's always throwing a curve and he, you know he should be careful of that. She's not going to let him get away with it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, the,
0: there, 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 he, he tries to invite himself up to her apartment at one point, and she goes, There you go again, pitching low and outside. Right. Which I like it, it is a recurring a recurring uh, element of her dialogue. And I, I found that very clever. I found it very charming.
1: Yes. And I, th- I think all that banter and the, the slang and the, even um, Hardy Cathcart. Is that, his first name is Hardy, right? Yeah. Hardy yeah. Cathcart. He, he's got some very clever lines too. And. The whole thing just worked together really well. Even even the um, dastardly villain has has all has a lot of clever lines. <laughs> I just I I found it very entertaining and which was kind of surprising for a film more Well, not that they're not entertaining, but just the amusing aspect of it. The the, the friendliness between the two main characters, which that part's unusual for a film more, I think.
0: It can be, yeah. There there isn't um, this movie does go dark. A few times there are murders, uh, and there there are is menace in this movie. But the two leads do have an affection for each other that it that gives the movie also a lightness. I will agree with that, that. This is like this is a very uh, I guess maybe effervescent is the word I'm looking for. Film noir, like in a way mm-hmm. that a lot of them aren't. Like it doesn't get bogged down in the darkness that. A lot of kind of classic film noir gets into which is not a like I like it I love it when a film noir gets really dark but this is not that this is more of a well it's not really a caper because it does get pretty dark at the end I it's just it it never uh it never feels miserable at any point
1: well the only the only I think audience members are certainly not miserable but I but I (laughs) Unless they really hate film noir, which is not, I'm not one of those people. But um, the the person who's the most miserable is Brad. <laughs> He's like trying to get away from something in his past. He can't, he doesn't seem to know how to do that. He's let, he, if it weren't for Kathleen, I think he'd let himself really sink to the bottom. And I, and I think she's the one that that helps him the most
2: yeah definitely.
1: Him, yeah, keeps him from really going over the edge. so it, it, the, you're right, the, the film does take some pretty dark turns that, that, that's for sure. and he's I, I think he, <laughs> I think he would be really lost without her, but somehow they get they get through.
0: They do, and I um I'm going to say that I think Lucille Ball is great in this movie which is no surprise like she's it it is surprising to see her in a dramatic quote-unquote dramatic turn if you kind of only know her from her you know i love lucy or beyond but uh this is at a point in her career early on where she was kind of doing all sorts of things she was kind of a utility player i mean just you know actresses or actors early on just did whatever the studio told them to do and she is really good in this movie I think she outshines Mark Stevens, who plays Galt, by quite a bit. I I think he's a little bit perfunctory in his performance, and it, it doesn't he doesn't quite embody that like world weary detective uh, film noir hero who's got a troubled past, which is how his dialogue is written a lot of the time and how his character is meant to be. But he I, I just don't think he I don't think he's bad. I just don't think he's uh, he's quite the right fit for the role. Even though I, I, I like, I, I don't think he's bad. I do, I do like him in this movie. I just think that uh, he's a little out of his depth and outshine or outshone by uh, Lucille Ball, who's so much fun in this movie.
1: I think it would be hard to find a good match for her. To be honest, I've seen her in other film noir and. and she really shines in almost every single one of the film that I've seen her in. It's, and I, maybe you're right. Maybe Mark Stevens doesn't really measure up. I, I noticed that in some of his scenes, he almost seems like he's talking with his jaw clenched. And I, I, I would. I didn't. Wasn't sure whether that was like supposed to be part of the character. He thought that would be a good idea, or or whether he just. Re- you're right. Didn't inhabit the role and was uncomfortable with it. Um, did you find that that he w- that he?
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can hear it, and it, it does seem like that. That's kind of part of what I'm talking about. Is is just that he. Um, it, it feels like. It's, it feels like he's doing it because it's something other film noir anti-heroes or heroes have done like it, it, it's he's doing it because cinematically we understand that to be kind of tough that manner of speaking yeah. um, it, it fits the light the lines that he's saying uh so i don't know maybe maybe there's not much he could have done with it maybe it's just he has to kind of fit this role um but to, to go back just a bit to what you were saying that Kathleen Lucille Ball absolutely she absolutely saves him in this movie there's because the very beginning he gets this very uh crushing news that that shakes him and he he immediately goes and takes a big swig of whatever alcohol he's got there in his office and then just goes out and he's like you're going to dinner with me and he's like he's so uh well it you know it's just the 40s and a man just saying you you're going to dinner with me and like uh he's not charming in this at all but she goes along and she's like you know good humored about it and just immediately you can see him several times in this movie he gets really depressed he gets really like like hopeless and then just talks to her for a minute and is immediately cheered up like he's like i feel much better now he actually says that to her at one point like that that he's not he's uh That she didn't fix his problems, but it was good talk. Like, I can't remember the line. Like, just basically that what she said helped him with his mood. And uh, it happened several times in this movie. And with, yeah, without her, I think he would have just, like, I don't know, died in a gutter, I guess. (laughs) With a bottle. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I I think I remember the scene you're talking about. He's She's, yeah, actually, uh, let me backtrack just a little bit. Because I think she actually had a crush on him like probably from the day she started working for him, because when the um, Lieutenant Reeves shows up and starts talking to her first, because Brad Galt is out of the office, she's very and, and Lieutenant Reeves notices this, she's very loyal to Brad Galt. She doesn't really tell Lieutenant Reeves all that much. And then when Brad comes in and the two Brad and Lieutenant Reeves go into Brad's office, the office office is actually like split into like two separate little rooms. She's got the front room and he's got the back office. And when they, when the two of them go into the back office, there's a shot of her sitting at her desk watching very intently. And I, I didn't think that was just professional, although part of it probably was, I think she was also already very interested in him. So when she, when he, Kind of bluntly asks her out for to dinner. She's happy about it, really. She she wants to go. She's a little nervous about it because he he's her boss. But and she says something like that to him. But but she's still happy to go. So I mean, did I misread that? Maybe did you see it differently?
0: No, it, you're right. I, I think I, I think there is an implication there that that she. Well, she says, she's like, uh, the, uh, uh, the cop comes in and says, like, what do you think your boss? And she's like, she says, well, I like him. And and like, or I know enough to like him, or uh, I can't remember what the exact line is. But yeah, she, she, she does apparently have some affection for him before this entire beginning. Although, oddly, it also feels like she's only been working for him for a few months, I think, is what she says it seems like they've never had a full conversation until tonight, which is kind of weird for two people who are working, like, like there's nobody else around. They're just working in that empty office together that they, they don't seem to know anything about each other. But um, I think that, you know, that, that's kind of a, maybe a modern standard. I just know like jobs that I've had. I've, I've never had a job where I don't know anything about the person I'm working next to or, have not had at least like one or two conversations in passing or during the day, but uh it, it does seem like they're, they're completely getting doing to, to know each other for the first time when they go out to dinner and then later to, uh well, they're supposed to be in New York, but they, they go to the Santa Monica pier.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, um yeah, I, you know, you're right. I think, I mean, but she, if, I, I got the feeling that she was observing him for quite a while. I think she, she sees him, I think because of her observation, she sees something that she really likes in him. Um, she doesn't really know him at all, but she's more than willing, I think, to find out more about him. I wonder if her period of observation, you know, the, the two months there where they didn't seem to really actually talk that much, but she makes that's isn't it that same evening where she makes that observation yeah it is at the end of the evening she tells him that he's she's he's got his heart locked away in a vault so she does actually know something about his emotional life even though they haven't really seemed to have had a conversation until that because I think you're right about that they don't seem to have talked about much uh, up until the time they go out to dinner and then out to the to the uh to the pier
0: yeah and he is very pushy (laughs) i mean maybe it it, maybe it wouldn't have seemed like that at the time but he's always trying to get up to her her apartment he's trying to get her back to his house it 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 just kind of it's funny and it made me laugh i didn't really but it was i found it funny on the second viewing how like he goes from this is just a strictly professional relationship to you're coming to dinner with me. Now let's go back to my place. And like, like 1940s, that, that would have, I mean, that stuff happened. I'm sure I'm just saying it's like not as culturally uh, prevalent as it is today.
1: I don't know, I, you know, it's funny. I didn't really pick up on that.
0: Uh, maybe, maybe it's just that I, I was so not, not really charmed by him, uh, but very kind of taken with her performance
1: yeah that could yeah that could be well i mean uh, yeah clearly she's outshines him no matter what (laughs) he he he, he, now that you mentioned it, i guess he was kind of pushy but the the plot wouldn't have advanced that i guess i just sort of took it as you know he almost has to do that to get the plot going in a way
0: (laughs) yeah i i will say like kind of to to say something positive because i don't want to come across like i'm I'm saying he's a bad actor um i think they have very good chemistry together i sometimes in these movies like i I can't remember what film noir i just watched where um and it's not too late for tears Uh, that that's something else we'll talk about later but there was a different movie i watched where oh i remember it was on it was on dangerous ground where uh ida lupino and um oh my gosh i'm blanking on robert Robert Ryan. Robert Ryan. So Ida Lupino and Robert Ryan are like have this blossoming relationship, and they say things about the uh, hidden personal lives of the other. They have these great insight in, into each other. And if you think about it, in the movie, they've known each other for five minutes. <laughs> like they they have not had real conversations, and now they're talking about. He says to her at one point, like, you've never been scared of anything in your life. I'm like, what are you talking about? You just met her. You don't know anything about her. Uh, Sometimes in a movie, even a movie I love, like, I love On Dangerous Ground, but it it can feel like, like, like the movie is just throwing them together and it doesn't feel real. It just, that's what the plot needs, but they had a pretty good chemistry. I bought all of their scenes together as they're kind of like. Their relationship is growing and how they acted around each other
1: I mean it, it, after the in, initial date, I guess you could call it, it it's he is kind of pushy he he suddenly becomes interested in her, but he but you know she's continues working on him. I think that's how the relationship kind of develops really I'm not sure it would have developed into one if she, it, if everything goes back to Lucille Ball you know she gets the investigation going, she keeps him motivated, and she mo- moderates their romance in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, she, he actually says a line when he invites her back to his place, and uh, she says no, and he he says like, uh, hey, no offense, a guy's got a right to try to score. And her line is another baseball metaphor where she's like, well, that's the problem, you're playing to score and I'm playing for keeps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or I don't play for play to score. I play for keeps, is what she says. Uh, she is the driving force of this movie. Everything is happening to Galt, but uh, his actions are always spurred on by her, pretty much. Uh, it, not everything. He, he makes some pretty awful decisions on his own, but <laughs> everything that gets the movie, uh, the plot, and everything come to come, you know, to a satisfying conclusion is driven by Kathleen in this movie.
1: Um, did you happen to watch the movie on DVD and listen to the audio commentary or did you?
0: No, this movie I don't own. Um, I found a copy on uh, Daily Motion streaming and okay. it's, it's not the greatest. Like I know it's part of that, uh, Fox had that series of film noir and I never, I didn't buy this one. Um, so I am meant to look into it actually.
1: <laughs> well, I'm not sure if- I mean, I, I listened to the audio commentary that by two film historians, um, Alan Silver and James Ersini. Um, apparently they've written several books on film noir. I, I don't always find their insights, uh, I'm not even sure they're always relevant. That, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but, um, but they did point out some really uh, interesting things about the relationship between uh, Galt, and, uh, Brad, and Kathleen uh, in that basically what what we're saying, he's, he's motivated only, he seems only to be motivated because he's met Kathleen and she offers these suggestions and she's obviously very interested in him. But they do make this great point at the end, you, you know that scene where he goes to meet I don't know if he's actually going to meet Fred Foss in particular, but he goes to the, the, the office building where Hardy Cathcart has the dentist appointment and he yeah. Cathcart has just pushed Fred Foss out the window. And so he comes, Brad comes to that street scene and he sees Fred Foss. He knows it's Fred Foss because of the things that fell out of his pocket. There's that great little shot of the, the roll of coins that, uh, He had in his pocket at the beginning of the movie and when he realizes who it is he steals the cab that has his bags in the back seat and and they they did make this great point about how finally brad made a decision on his own (laughs) he finally seems happy and kathleen is not even in the scene he's driving away he steals the cab he's driving away and he actually seems happy behind the wheel. And he makes a second great decision is when he goes back to the taxicab company and loses the cab. It's, uh, he gets lost in the sea of cabs. So the police officer can't even find him. And um, so Alan Silver and James Ersini are, are like, finally, he's made two great decisions. He's taken some action. He's actually lifted himself out of his own depression and he didn't need Kathleen to do it. But I think the point, for me anyway, is that if Kathleen hadn't been there for the first like hour and a half, I'm not sure he would have done that. He finally seems to um, be able to pick himself up himself. But I think he's had a lot of help until that point. And it goes back to Lucille Bull. She's just so great in this film that, um, yeah, she's like the motivating force behind almost everything.
0: The, uh, I don't know if I would call that a great decision, honestly, because. Why didn't he just take the bag? It's much more conspicuous to steal a whole car. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and it it always makes me wonder in these these old Hollywood movies. I I guess I don't need it because it 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 would just be kind of tedious. But well, or it could be funny. I could see this as like a like a humorous scene in a like noir comedy where at the end of the movie he has been cleared of the murder he was framed for and yet he is still facing legal trouble for all of the damage he caused along the way clearing his name like stealing that cab and like any of the other things that he did like hiding a body it's like well you you proved you were innocent in killing this person but you've caused like 10 million dollars in property damage in in the process
1: yeah that never happens in film noir does it
0: no no and it, it this movie uh and it in particular i mean we're jumping to the head end here but we can we can go back is the movie ends with kind of a a a surprising amount of murder like in in succession in the back like half hour of this movie um i guess only three but it's just like it seems like uh a lot for for kind of how light the movie is at other times where right after being held at gunpoint and witnessing a man that is like the the person holding at gunpoint uh killed by his wife he just kind of like turns around gives a cheery wave to the cops and goes off arm in arm with lucille ball (laughs) and like obviously there's a little cut there's like a little bit of time passed that we didn't see but it's just like such a funny thing in these movies to end with Kind of the big denouement. The movie's been kind of dark, and then just suddenly, like, "Hey, we're all happy!" We, like none of that murder bothered us at all.
1: They're going off to get married. In fact,
0: yeah, they are at uh, city hall.
1: Well, yeah, you're right. It's 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 it, you know, and I guess that's why it's film more. It is very dark in a lot of places. I, I mean, I just mentioned that Hardy Cathcart pushes pushes Fred Foss out the window. I I the first time I saw that movie, I never expected that. I didn't really think. I mean, I Hardy Cathcart seems capable of quite a quite a lot, but I just didn't see that coming.
0: Well, they they kind of play it close to the vest. What Cathcart's deal is for a while, and you don't find out until much later in the movie that uh, Cathcart is the one that's having or that's messing with uh, Brad Galt. Because yes. Brad Galt is being tailed by somebody, he he thinks it's it's um, or the guy tailing him tells him it's uh, Tony Jar- Jardine, who he had dealings with in San Francisco. Uh, Jardine framed him for manslaughter, and he spent two years in jail. This is a, uh, he, this guy is just a magnet for being framed for murder, um, and he spends he spends two years in jail. He's trying to put all that behind him. That's like his tortured past, and suddenly this guy turns up tailing him, and he thinks that. Tony Jardine is trying to mess with him or trying to, uh, to push him into something. Uh, but then it, it turns out it is Cathcart and Cathcart knows that Jardine or suspects that Jardine is seducing his wife and is going to use Galt to get rid of Jardine. It, it's like, a, it's actually kind of a, a complex plot. And for most of the movie, you think it's Jardine doing this. You, you don't see who uh, uh, William Bendix is talking to on the phone. You assume because it, it it sets it up that like oh I'll go get him and you think they're getting Jardine, but they're actually like you you find out later that's Cathcart. That is re- correct, right? I'm they're, I'm not skipping a scene. They didn't show that it was Cathcart at that moment, right?
1: I don't think so. I think it does come as a surprise.
0: Okay. Well,
1: you know, actually, I think the viewers might guess a little bit earlier, but Brad Galt no doesn't guess get it
0: okay yeah, because there's 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 a sign that um uh Jardine and Cathcart's wife are are having kind of a i don't I don't think at that point in the movie it had yet shown that they were having an affair, but um or maybe it had I can't remember i know i I, I said i just finished watching it, but i'm I was also writing notes at the same time. Um, so uh there i I lost the train there. But I'm just saying. Oh, uh, but Cathcart, you kind of find out as the movie goes on that he is not the greatest guy. Like he 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 starts. He's very in the beginning. It's um uh. Why am I? It it's uh, Clifton Webb, and he's very charming. He's always very charming. You can see he's he's married this this beautiful woman who is much younger than him. He seems a little bit possessive, but otherwise like not a bad guy, but you find out more and more that he's just like incredibly uh, immoral. (laughs) Like he he has like, he's willing to do some of the worst things for, uh, you know, for profit or what he calls love, but is actually just a superficial uh, like lust for beauty kind of whereas Jardine at the time is being portrayed as the biggest scumbag. He's like blackmailing women and uh, like you know sleeping with his best friend's wife and um, so it, it you find out I think before the the murder of William Bendix but you're, you're never you you aren't sure until kind of that point how low Cathcart is gonna is willing to go.
1: Well up until that point he, it, you, you're right. He, he, As the movie progresses, you find out more and more that he's kind of a um, corrupt individual. But um, you, you, up until that point, you really believe that he doesn't want to get his hands dirty with murder because he, that's why he hires Fred Foss. He doesn't want to do it himself so so he hires somebody else to do it and so killing him fred i mean i I mean he doesn't seem to have any use for him anymore he's gotten the job done um they see it in the newspaper He, he he knows that um jardine has been killed and his body has been found but he I I just didn't, I, you know, I guess the first time I saw it, I just, I knew he already had a lot of money. I didn't think that he would want to keep his money that badly that he would push somebody out the window.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He, he, he like, he makes this big show of paying him and then drops the money and he's like, oh, let me get this. And when he leans over to pick it up, he just like rushes forward and shoves him out the window.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, No, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not that you don't believe that he's really one of the evil ones in in the story but it just for me it came as a surprise although the the next the second time I saw it I thought well it is kind of odd that William Bendix plants himself between Cathcart and that really really big window (laughs) I don't know that I would have done that
0: well what's funny to me is that the cops on the scene mark it as a suicide all the bystanders that saw it Mark it as a suicide, and he falls out of that window backwards and screaming. <laughs> and, and they're like, and the cab driver says, "Never expected him to pull a Brody," which I didn't understand what that meant. I had to look it up. And it, oh, it, what
1: does it mean? I didn't. I I never found out what that meant.
0: It refers to Steve Brody, the first person to jump and survive. Uh, well, survive jumping from the Brooklyn Bridge in eighteen eighty-six. He did that, and it it became like kind of a um a term for somebody doing like some like jumping or falling from a great height like that. And now I guess it just it, it's it, it's a common enough term I guess that just refers to any sort of stunt. It Pull a brody. I always heard brody like or not always, but like brody's re- referred to like kind of doing donuts in a lawn or on the in a parking lot or something. I've heard people call that pulling a brody. But I didn't understand what it meant in the context of this until I had to look it up.
1: I—that's I, one thing about film noir. I, I end up looking up a lot of things because I'm not sure what what it means. And um, I, when I watch, this is just kind of an aside, but when I watch these movies, I like watching them on DVD so I can put up the English subtitles. Yeah, <laughs> even though <yeah>. it's English, <laughs> I want to know what they're saying because I. That sometimes the expressions are, are like so foreign to me that i don't know what they mean and pulling a brody i i i mean i knew it it must have meant that he jumped out the window but i had never heard it before i'm surprised that you uh say you've heard a part because i the only context i've ever heard it is in this film
0: yeah i didn't connect the two until i looked it up and saw that it's like oh okay uh it's used for just kind of like stunting or showing off but i i i didn't I mean, I didn't connect it until I looked up what pullover already means. And I I just want to call out that cab driver as well. Seems very blasé about all this because then he's like, he's like, hey, stuff is still in the back of the car. And then he goes to the cop and he's like, you know, I ain't never yet seen one of those guys bounce. (laughs) How many people is he seeing fall out? I I guess 1945 or six when this movie, this movie came out in 46. So let's say it was 45 or 46 that it's taking place in um i guess he could have been around new york during the the Wall the uh, the uh uh stock market crash right
1: oh right yeah um,
0: i don't know I, I i mean maybe it's just a common occurrence in this guy's life
1: well i guess if you drive a cab around new york city maybe you see it more often than yeah than other people i normally would I'd spend that much time in the street i guess but I wondered if it was also meant to show like the, you know, it's, it's very noirish, you know, he's like sort of caring, but not caring, mostly not caring. Mm-hmm. And But I, I wonder if it's just like was supposed to show like the whole, that whole New York attitude. Um, I grew up in New York, so I'm not sure I uh, would, would agree with that necessarily, <laughs> but I know a lot of people say that, like New Yorkers are so hard, but. Um, you know, you try growing up around 8 million people, you you you, don't, you just stop talking to a lot of them around you because there are just too many of them around you. Yeah. But, um, well, I, I'm being a little facetious, but I, No, don't know, it seemed like a typical noir character, small character to have, you know, say something like that.
0: There's one other thing I want to call out here that I had to, I had to do some Googling because I was like, what, what is that about? Is Kathleen has a runner in the movie talking about stockings. Like that's one of the the terms she has him agree to about going on a date. Is like if you could, you're a private investigator. If you could dig up a pair of nylons in size whatever, and she's like later on, she's like if you can't find that size, I'll take a nine or uh, eleven or like it, it comes up three or four times in the dialogue that that she wants nylons and eventually I think I don't know if she gets them, but she she brings it up several times in the movie and. I was like, well, what's going on? Is there a, a nylon shortage? And I completely didn't think of the year that this movie came out because DuPont, I, I did some research, I, Wikipedia, if you call that research. But at the time, oh, actually, <laughs> at the time, DuPont was the sole copyright owner on nylon stockings. Like nobody else can, you know, nobody else can make them. They had the patent, maybe not copyright patent. Um, and during World War II, of course, all of their factories were relegated to military production for parachutes. And so there was a severe shortage of stockings people couldn't find them. There were burglaries and robberies committed across the country like one. Uh, there was like one house was robbed of like 13 pairs of stockings and um, uh, crimes were committed over stockings. And then in 1945, after World War II, DuPont announced that they would begin producing stockings again, but they weren't able to meet the demand for a while. And it led to actual riots because in, in one riot in, in Pittsburgh, I think, or Philadelphia, 40,000 women lined up for 13,000 stockings and there were fist bites and like, large melees, Uh, there was another one in New York where reported 30,000 women lined up and it kind of went on for months and there was like uh, escalating. They they got worse and worse as they went along and it wasn't until mid-1946 that DuPont was able to meet demand. And it was nationwide news. One of the headlines that listed or mentions, uh, here's the headline from I think Georgia, women risk life and limb in bitter battle for nylons. And (laughs) that's kind of clever. (laughs) This led to newspapers and reporters encouraging people to write their congressmen, saying that DuPont was being greedy by holding onto the patent of an item that was causing so much violence and mayhem because of shortages. And they were eventually they were actually threatened with a an antitrust suit, and ended up having well on their own. They ended up sharing the license with another company, so that they were no longer the only ones that were making uh, nylons. And I found that very fascinating, and I learned about it because of a couple of lines in this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. I uh, well, that happens with film noir. So you know, it's it, I one one of the reasons I like another reason I like film noir is um, it's kind of a lesson, the uh, history lesson really, because it's, you know, America in literally in 1946. It's like a snapshot, a small snapshot of life in the United States. And um, that she actually does get a pair eventually, because I, rem- I remember. I okay. remember, Yeah, there's, there's a box.
0: I, thought, I thought that happened, but I couldn't remember it.
1: Yeah, there's a box that she gets um, that she has lying on her desk, I think it is. I, and I think that's the scene where she's putting them on. She, she, she's just finished putting them on. It's like very, she's showing off her legs. You see a shot of her legs. And I think that's because she's just put them on because the, the box is on her desk. But I noticed that too, that, um, but I actually noticed it for different reasons. I mean, I did notice the fact that the stockings, she asked about the stockings several times, but um, Brad Gold, another clever thing about the dialogue in this film, Every time she brings them up, he tells her, I'll make a note of it. And I thought it was clever. I thought it was clever the way he refers to writing or uses the metaphor of writing. At the beginning of the film, when Lieutenant Reeves um, first comes to visit him, he's, I forget the line exactly, but there's something about he wants to play it by the book and he's not going to even trip over a comma. And I notice those little things because i do so much writing myself and i thought in addition to all the baseball metaphors you had these um would you call them metaphors i don't know but this sort of the reference to the act of writing just stuck out to me um although he says all like i'll make a note of it always in reference to the stockings so i um probably looked up the stockings for both reasons really not that i needed you to look up you know why he said that but i noticed it more because of what his response to her yeah he, it's it, i just thought it was clever and that he comes through because he does get the stockings for her
0: yeah he's not that better guy i guess <laughs> yeah
1: well i mean if he had to go to that much trouble he probably had to get it on the black market can you imagine? i mean that's probably what she was referring to now that we're talking about it, <laughs> that he must have some connections to the yeah. underground, the black market or something.
0: Yeah, I, I was reading that prices for nylons were, go, were up to $20, which is insane for 1946, 1945. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money.
1: But the thing is, at that time, I don't think you could have gone anywhere without them so that women would sort of be almost trapped yeah well
0: i did read that some women resorted to using makeup like on their legs or or something and drawing lines like stocking lines on their legs yeah. so that it on from a distance it would look like they were wearing them
1: yeah and i've heard that actually i have heard that
0: i just didn't realize that nylons which were introduced in like the late, mid to late 30s, I think, I didn't realize they were such a big deal. And I guess it, it, you know, I I I mean, I I should have realized, I guess, from just watching so many movies from that period, but it just um, seems, it seems so strange now, nearly a century later, I guess.
1: Well, you know, in, in a funny sort of way, I see some parallels with the pandemic. You know, people... I don't know how you feel. We shouldn't get into politics, maybe, but I, um, I, I feel like I, although this isn't no, politics, is
0: I, I'll tell you right now. You, we can talk about it. We can say what, um, it, it, it really started to take over the openings of my show to the point where I just started cutting it all out because it's like people hear me say this stuff every week. But we like you say whatever you want.
1: Well, I, I, I was just going to make the point that that the the way a lot of people have been reacting to wearing masks, let's say, or getting on, on flights again and fighting over, I don't even know what they're fighting over, but I guess it, it's, when you said that there were so many fist fights breaking out, it made me think that, you know, human nature hasn't, we haven't changed in 80 years, I'm afraid. <laughs> so it seems like we, we're still acting the same way, but for just it just happens to be for very different reasons.
0: Yeah. I <laughs> and, mean, maybe, because you get, like the the reasons might be similar when you think about it, just like coming out of World War II, and a lot of people readjusting to society, society changing quite a bit, almost overnight, and the adjustment to that, yeah. like, um, you know, the, the, like the rush right now, everybody has the rush to be like, I want to. What do you mean I can't go without a mask? Like, it, it's over now, and they, like people just are rushing out to go back to normal that. That, that is a, a parallel to, you know, post-World War II. What do you mean I can't have nylons? I want nylons. The world is back to normal. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I can see that. I, it, it is kind of similar situations in a way, if you think about it.
1: You know, we're, we're living film noir <laughs> as, as we speak. <laughs> you know, and actually that whole post-World War II theme comes up in Too Late for Tears. We should, get, we should mention that when we... Um, oh yeah. We'll, for tears. We'll, we'll be getting
0: there in a minute, and that's that's definitely something that'll come up. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to steamroll where you were going, but I just I have a couple of notes I want to get out as well.
1: Okay. No, go ahead. No, I I just wanted to point that out that film you know film noir is not dead.
0: <laughs> you can still see its influences all over the place, even if it is not as prevalent a genre as it was but like that's something that that's come up a bit too in these these episodes is how nebulous the term film noir is that you can kind of apply it to a lot of movies and it, it is kind of like that old uh that old thing about the, the old thing the senator said about pornography i know it when i see it film noir is a little bit in the eye of the beholder right like you can make an argument yeah. about a lot of things and say, that is film noir, or you could say, that is not film noir. And it's all arbitrary. It's however you want to think about it.
1: I, I think that point was addressed in the class that we took. It was, I it was.
0: <laughs> See, I'm stealing from TCM again. Well, that, that's actually-
1: That's okay. Uh, <laughs> that's
0: Richard, uh, Richard Edwards, right? He did the class. He was the professor.
1: Yes, that's right, yes. And um, in fact, it came up recently with the Barbara Stanwyck movie. I wish I could remember the, t- the name of it. Um, but I thought it was a little bit more melodrama and not really film noir. And, and the funny thing is, I really don't like categories all that much. I mean, I know you need them to sort of talk about things, but it surprised me that I didn't think it was film noir because I'll, you know, I'm not really that fussy about about categories, but for some reason that particular yeah. movie, you, you know, what did it for me? This she she marries this guy and she actually has a baby by another another man, and and mar- but marries someone else who's not the father, and that baby was the happiest baby I've ever seen in a movie. He just was smiling he he seemed to take all his cues seriously <laughs> I mean he was just the perfect little actor and it was really hard for me to think of that film as a noir when the baby was always happy always you know uh, just you know just it just made the family life seem so secure that I just it just I couldn't see it as a film more simply because of the baby it's just an aside there it has nothing to do with the dark corner but (laughs) i you know just how hard it is for film noir to be really it's just not a rigid category going back to your point it's just not really a um a very rigid category yeah
0: um i think i think i haven't seen it but i think the movie you're talking about is it no man of her own that's it that's it very good i have not i googled i i just like put in some keywords there
1: (laughs) oh okay it's actually a very good movie and the more i think about it i guess the more noir it is i don't want to if you haven't seen it i don't want to take you know take out and you know any any of the surprises maybe that's something we should talk about at some point if you feel like going back to noir after these oh definitely yeah
0: i we will we'll talk about that (laughs) we'll do that off air one thing this movie does and we mentioned uh, we we talked a lot about the kind of relationship and how light this movie can be at times um the movie does call out the thin man and william powell specifically when she says to to, uh, brad at one point that uh he should have william powell as a secretary and he doesn't know who that is and she's like william powell don't you go to the movies he's a detective in the thin man and that seems very clear to me that they're kind of like hoping to get some of that energy, some of that comedic like light, light energy into a noir film that the Thin Man movies uh mo- the captured. Like it it seems like an acknowledgment of what they're going for.
1: Maybe you know, it's funny. I thought of the dark corner as being lighter than
0: the thin man Mm, well it's it's maybe lighter than the first thin man movie uh but the sequels to the thin man get kind of i mean you know especially once the kid comes in (laughs) they're they're just a little bit mm, i don't want to say toothless but they're not they're not like as dark and plus i think the first thin man is pre-code and some of the sequels were after the hayes code so there's clearly going to be a, a lightning um, of tone there
1: you know I do recall reading somewhere that Dashiell Hammett did not he, he wanted no part of the sequels and maybe that maybe what you're saying is the reason why maybe he felt that they they drained all the real meat of his or the essence of his story just right out of it to, to appeal to the masses yeah
0: yeah so he really was a so, yeah uh thin man in 1934 would have been pretty close to the like it, it's pre-code uh after the thin man 1936 is after the Hayes code so yeah definitely that would have been lightened there um yeah. and they they do not have i like all of the sequels i like i mean william powell and myrna Loy are always great together i love william powell so much um so I love all of the Thin Man sequels, but man, none of them are are near the quality of that first one.
1: Well, I could see why you thought that uh, Mark Stevens didn't measure up because William Powell is a lot more suave and sophisticated than Mark Stevens.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he's got he's got that. Well, I mean, not that he's required to have any, but William Powell has like impeccable comic timing with. Uh, uh, like some of his his body language and, and glances.
1: Yeah, and, and, and no one's, I mean, yeah, actually he might have been a good foil for, for Lucille Ball in this film because the two of them probably would have had better, better comedic timing together even than she and Mark. I mean, I, I think you're right that Mark, she and Mark Stevens have good chemistry together on the screen, but something tells me that she would have been be, even better with someone like William Powell.
0: Maybe, maybe it's interesting to think about. I I do think it's a little bit, I don't know. Myrna Loy just has that like snappiness to her that goes so well with William Powell. And so I'm comparing now Lucille Ball to Myrna Loy. And Lucille Ball is a great actress, a great comedic presence. She's very funny, uh, but there, it's such a different tone. And maybe I'd just be wanting that if it was Lucille Ball and William Powell. But there is kind of a... It, there's a different energy to William Powell that I think even though Mark Stevens doesn't really capture the world weariness required of the role, I think he kind of captures the, well, not captures, but like he he makes a good foil for Lucille Ball's comedic presence in this movie and and how she ends up driving so much yeah. of the plot that I think, I, I don't think William Powell would have, well, no, I can't say that because he totally would have. I was just going to say he wouldn't have taken uh, the back seat to the plot the way that Mark Stevens does, but I think he actually could have done that. Well,
1: it's all speculation, I guess, at this point.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the whole thing. It's like it's, it, we just had a, a bunch of what we could rewrite
1: so. the movie and put William Powell in it. <laughs> um, there, there were, oh geez I just thought of something and now I forgot it you know how that is when we get we get off on one tangent and, and something you said triggered something and then I completely forget about it because we got those other 10.
0: Oh it happens all the time I'm trying to get better at like scribbling notes down so I don't interrupt people and I don't forget them but um, Lucille Ball we've talked a lot about how much she how great she is in this movie she did not like making this movie
1: That's exactly what I was thinking of. Thank you. (laughs) All I heard was that she was trying to get out of her MGM contract and that she, uh, I guess, threatened to sue to get out of it. And so to get back at her MGM, decided to put her in this B, loan her out and put her in this B film. And she didn't want to do it. And she had a lot of trouble working with Henry Hathaway. That's what I heard.
0: Yeah, she said that uh, he would basically bully her on the set and made it miserable. Yeah, um, he has a story where he he says that she was unable to get through any of her lines, and so she he told her to leave the set and come back when she had read the script. And the, the, like, he's not the only one that tells the story. Other people were there, but uh, it 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 he seems to have come around on it because he does say that this is her best or one of her best dramatic performances uh and maybe that's just you know he's he's the guy taking the credit for getting the good performance out of the woman act the, the actress i mean not that i'm not saying that it, it justified him bullying her on the set but he seems to think it, it worked and i don't know maybe she was going through something i only read on wikipedia that she was described by the studio as having an unsettled personal life, which I didn't know what that meant. And I don't know enough about Lucille Ball uh, in her personal life to understand like what that might be referring to.
1: Um, I, think, I think the two um, historians on the DVD, um, Silver and Ercini talked about that a little bit because I, I seem to recall that they mentioned that um, she was having marital problems with Desi Arnaz. He was already cheating on her and that she was those were the personal problems. I, she, I don't think they were thinking of getting divorced at that time. I think that was in the '50s, but he was already cheating on her. And, they, and you know that made her miserable, oh. that getting naturally enough. So um, I think that's why she wanted to get out of a contract too, because she didn't want there was some conflict between her and her husband about her working. I think her success in comparison to him was always sort of a problem for the two of them.
2: Okay. That's what I heard,
1: that's what I've read. But I don't know anything more than that about it. And that may have come up as a subject in the, um, the comedy class, because we, we saw some film clips with, with uh, I think with the two of them, there was that movie where they, they take the trip on the, the long, long trailer. Yeah, which is actually pretty good.
0: I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but I, I want—I I remember thinking it was funny as a kid.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it was pretty funny as it, I saw it, you know, as an adult, and I thought it was pretty funny. He was pretty good in it. I, I always felt like she got all the, the credit, but he was actually pretty good too. And i, I never—it was—was it, you know, like. American chauvinism, you know, because he came from Cuba. I don't know. I just found that really odd that he wasn't given the credit that he, that he
0: deserved. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it is. I, I think about that sometimes too, that he's really a, a good foil. Um, and he, he has a lot of really good, uh, well, comedic chops on display and in that show, but really I only know them from the, the show
1: which you know and now that i've seen lucille ball and like the dark corner i've seen her in lord which i think you mentioned as a possible candidate for this
0: yeah yeah that that i was thinking about that yeah one.
1: um i actually like I, I i find it difficult to watch i love lucy now because it's i, I just think that she, her talents are i mean she's very funny but i don't think she's as funny as she's good as good. an. As she's not as good as a comedian as she is an actress. I, that that's my opinion, but clearly a lot of people would disagree with me.
0: <laughs> Do you have anything more you want to say about uh, the dark corner? Um,
1: No, not really. We've, it's, you know, it's almost been two hours as it is Am <laughs> We've been really, uh, we've let time. When it's it,
0: It's been about an hour. If you cut out like the, the, uh we started a few minutes late and the disconnection issues Oh right yeah so I think we're we're doing good we're doing good but yeah I I do have to wrap up soon I, I was gonna say like way back in the beginning I called this a quintessential film noir and kind of what I meant by that is everything about this is kind of what what you would think of or visualize if you think of film noir like the dialogue is so good, the plot is very twisty, the um, the lighting and the direction—it's all what you you kind of want from a film noir. And yet, I, I I find it to be very entertaining, but maybe not like a a big a classic. And I, I, that that's not the way I want to say it. I'm just saying that this movie doesn't seem to have like any real subtext to it there's not a lot more on its mind it is just telling like a really good story and telling it very well uh, not like say a- another mo- noir movie we did uh, um, detour where detour has a lot of things on its mind and it's not made very well but that that kind of gives it its own strange power where this movie is is kind of content to be like you know, meat and potatoes, but also very good meat and potatoes. It is, it is uh, I think, a very entertaining film. And like I said, I watched it twice.
2: Hmm.
0: And I don't watch movies, like, more than once in short succession anymore now that I just don't have the time.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think you're right. But I, I'm not. I, I don't know. It's just because I just find it. I like it's just one of my favorites, and so I sort of like have to. I feel like I have to defend it or something. I don't know. Um, but, but you're right. It, it's, it's really, in a lot of ways, a fun noir, and that's, not really two terms you put together.
0: Ever. Well, I don't. I don't mean to insult this movie at all. I think that there's um like i said it's 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 telling a fun story and it's telling it very well but uh it it doesn't like it's not trying to be uh some exploration of the post-war existential dread of america (laughs) It is just a fun crime story
1: i i guess i hesitate i agree but i hesitate and i i don't want to argue this point because you're right i think really
0: oh i'm not I, yeah i i'm not gonna argue anybody saying it like it because <laughs> as we've we've you know discovered that we've talked about this movie for so long there there is stuff in here to parse and to discover um i just well i think maybe it'll come into sharper relief like maybe contrast what I mean with the next movie too late for tears
1: yes I think that's true um but the thing the one thing I did want to point out is that there's a lot of physical violence in, in this film a lot of fist fights um Brad Galt and Jardine get into one Fred Foss and he get into one or Fred Foss and Jardine get into one and then, yeah. and, and then there's, you know, death by poker, <laughs> fireplace poker and, um, you know, death out the window. I mean, it's very violent and yet it's still a fun movie. It's hard to, I, I think you're right. It's like, it's just hard to describe almost
0: yeah you're right well we i think we've done a good enough job of it i think people listening kind of get a sense (laughs) and if they haven't seen it already you know i think they'll understand but hopefully hopefully people listening this far have seen it or are are going to see it i I do recommend this movie i think this is very fun
1: oh like i said more than once already on your podcast it's like my one of my favorite all-time favorites so um uh, but, but I, I have to admit it almost makes me more hesitant to recommend it because i uh, i th- it's hard for me to be objective about it to be honest so um uh, i recommend it
0: well i get that <laughs> i get that there's plenty of movies that i think are like are i consider some of my favorites that i just never recommend to anybody because it's just like it well there's also something very personal about recommending a favorite movie and if they don't like it you kind of have to be like you feel like you have to defend why you call it one of your favorites?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: at least me, anyway. Yeah. So uh, I'll just say, uh, so that that is going to do it for our discussion on the dark corner. Um, we will be right back in just a second to talk about "Too Late for Tears" from 1949. You
2: said you wanted to look at it, Alan. Look at it. Fifties and twenties. There must be thousands here. Yeah, probably a
0: hundred thousand.
2: I told him you were here yesterday. The police would have the money now.
0: Let's get something straight, honey.
2: That's my dough you're talking about. Only half of it. You haven't a chance of getting it without my help.
0: What have you got in a bag? It weighs a ton.
2: There are no cigarettes in there, Alan. The
1: matter with you that's just to remind
0: you honey you're in a tough bracket now. too late for tears released in 1949 follows married couple jane and alan palmer as they try to figure out what to do with a mysterious bag full of cash that was thrown into their vehicle on a deserted road more particularly The movie is about Jane and her various maneuvers to make sure she keeps that money and attains the wealth and comfort she's always felt she deserved. Now I I struggled a little bit with how to introduce this movie and how to describe what it's about and Jane in general, because I did not want to tip my hand and immediately kind of like call her (laughs) the villain of this movie or, or that her desires are um are somehow uh not valid like there, there's there's a, a something i struggle with a lot with these older movies is their representation and how they treat women which you know you kind of have to expect a certain amount of uh, misogyny in this genre mm-hmm, or yes at least the, the women are all all kind of like uh out to hurt the men uh they're either like obstacles or goals for the men and uh i was i was really trying to like struggling how i how should i word this because i don't want this to sound like i am casting aspersions based on that she's a woman who wants wealth and comfort which is really honestly what everybody wants but uh I don't know. This is a weird way to get into the movie. And, and we'll, I'll let you explain why you picked it first. But I just want to say I was constantly surprised by her as a character and where this movie went. Uh, a lot of things happened in this movie I was not expecting. But Esri, uh, when did you see this movie first or what's your history? Why did you, Why did you pick it?
1: Well... I, I'm not sure when I saw it first. And the reason I say that is because I, I uh, had heard such good things about it through the class that we took, the um, TCM Summer of Darkness in 2015. And I think that um, Eddie Muller, who sometimes stepped in um, and into the discussions on the on the discussion boards, the message boards for TCM. Um, he had restored this film for the uh, Film Noir Foundation. And he was, the way I remember it was that he was very fond of the movie and thought it needed to be restored. So I thought, well, that you know, I guess I need to see it. And the funny thing is, when I did see it, I just, I, I was, I had this overwhelming feeling that I must have seen it on TV when, um, um, Well, this was when I was in school, way, way, way back, growing up in the New York area. And um, every day at 4 or channels in the New York area would show reruns, basically, of movies. Um, They weren't quite as classic then, because this was a really long time ago. (laughs) But um, I saw this. I'm sure I saw it. Like, instead of doing my homework, I got caught up in... um, jane palmer's intrigues and um and the reason i thought that believe it or not was because of don defore i i remember thinking when i saw it for after i heard about it in the class and for some reason i thought i thought this years ago that it was amazing that he was in this movie when he was the star of a of a sitcom on television called hazel did you ever hear of it
0: Uh, i have i don't i don't believe i have heard of that one
1: well, he, he was, as I recall, in that, in that sitcom. And he did a great job in that. It wasn't one of my favorites, but I always thought he was good in it. And um, he was great in this movie. He has the small part where he pretends to be the, I think he, he, he tells everybody his name is Don Blake, but he's really Don Blanchard. And he, he tries to impersonate a friend of um, Jane's husband, Alan. And um, he's trying to investigate her involvement in what he thinks is his, her responsibility for his brother's death because she was once married to his brother. It's so all very complicated.
0: But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't find that out till like the very end. Right.
1: Oh, so, to, like, well, spoiler we, we
0: alert. Aber- People should know by now. We we talked about these movies. We don't need like spoilers are going to happen. Uh, yeah. Okay. I just wanted to add the context that we we don't know anything about him, other than he that he says he's an army buddy of uh, Alan Palmer, right, and is helping Alan Palmer's sister investigate what happened after Alan goes missing. Uh, And we don't really we we get intonations that he's not who he says he is, but we don't find out what his story is until pretty late, like almost the end of the movie,
1: right. He actually has a bigger part than it. I mean, I mean, I know he's he's like a supporting character, but he has a pretty big role to play in the movie. And I just thought he was really good in it. But of course, um, nobody can stand in the way of Elizabeth Scott as Jane Palmer. She's just uh, amazing. And and all along, I always, I mean, I've seen the movie several times, and until somewhat recently, I really thought of her as the quintessential femme fatale. But I, I have re- revised that outlook a little bit because she's, she's definitely money hungry. She's definitely wants what she wants and she's going to do whatever she needs to do to get it. But she's operating in a ver- in what she sees at least as a very hostile world. And it does become hostile when she becomes involved with Danny Fuller. That's his name, right? The Don Durier character? Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a scene in this movie where he threatens to rape her. And I, after seeing a lot of film noir, I, mean, I know this is getting off tangent, but, I, but I, I wanted to just say that I don't think she's just a, a film fatale through and through. She faces a lot of danger and she's, this actually comes up a lot in film noir um the, fem- the f- most femme fatales are not 100 percent femme fatales and jane palmer is a perfect example of that i think in my opinion
0: yeah there there is you're right because there is always a unspoken sense with a, with mo- femme fatales in any film noir or any movie that would have a femme fatale that These are women who have had very hard, faced very hard times, dealt with very hard people. And we don't know what happened with Jane. Like we, we get a little bit of her past that she was married. And obviously that, that husband, that husband died. Uh, It was ruled a suicide.
2: Right. Yes.
0: Are we supposed to believe that now because of what she does throughout this movie and how many people she is willing to kill? Uh, and then when we like, I don't know, she's, she's such a, uh, like there, there's so much about her that I'm not completely certain of other than the fact that she is very good at thinking on her feet to try and get ahead (laughs) And, 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 but, but also like she makes some stupid mistakes, but like she's doing very well for most of the movie, uh, keeping one step ahead of everybody. But, um. Like, I'm not I'm not entirely sure when the switch is flipped for her because it, it kind of feels like she's just like, she's like this from the very beginning. But then there's also the point when she goes out to meet um, Danny Fuller with her husband and they're on the uh, Westlake, I think they're on Westlake and they're in those little boats. Oh, right. And it ends up with her husband, Alan, dying. And the, she's supposed to meet Danny Fuller with the money at this point, but her husband doesn't know anything about it. Oh, gosh. I, I feel like I'm jumping so much around the plot, people are going to be like, what are you talking about? At that at that point, like, so the gun goes off because Alan finds it and they're struggling for it and it goes off and he is dead. And at first when I saw this, I was like, oh, well, she didn't really mean to kill him because there's a moment where she's like, let's turn around. Let's go back. Let's give the money back. Let's go to the police. And like, she seems genuinely like she's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to keep the money. I don't want to deal with this man. I don't want to do any of this. But then she brought the gun and the gun, sorry, the gun couldn't have been for Danny. Because how is she going to explain that to her husband? Her husband doesn't know Danny is hiding back there. The gun must have been for him. And she, then she had second thoughts. So was she planning from the very beginning to kill her husband in order to keep this money, which is somewhere between 60 and 100,000. They think it might be as much as 100, but later it's revealed to be 60,000. So uh, what do you think about that? Do you think she she went out there planning to kill him?
1: Wow, that's a good point. I I think that's what make this makes this film such film noir because she's you know there's so much ambiguity. You don't really know for sure. And I'm not so sure she knows for sure. Because, you know, it is possible that she went went out on the boat with Alan thinking that she was going to kill Danny. Um and Alan would just be an unfortunate witness to it. But she never really says one way or the other what she's planning to do, does she? And she goes into the bedroom, their bedroom, takes Alan's gun. It's his service weapon from, from World War II. He keeps it as a souvenir. He's very fond of it. She, she knows all those details. Not fond of it. I mean, he, it's, it's very important to him it's, it's a souvenir of his time and in, in uh, his service in the army and, um, or I think it's the army, but anyway, he, she, she, she must have some ill intent.
0: We
1: well, just don't know what.
0: <laughs> Cause, Cause she doesn't tell him at all about Danny. Danny comes at first pretending to be a policeman investigating something and then reveals that he's like, I knew you, I know you have the money. That was my money. Uh, it was supposed to be given to me and they mistook your car for mine. So give it over." And she like, right away starts to seduce him. Like don't, they, they kiss that first, like right then. And she like comes on to him. And it like, we can share this money. And so she goes out there. She never tells her husband that he's been there, that they have to give the money back to him. She never says that he's supposed to be there. She's like, let's go out on a date let's do what we used to do. And their date is where she has told Danny to meet her. And so she must've thought like, I might have to kill him to do this because she immediately has the plan for how to make it look like he's just run away. Like she immediately knows like, we'll, we'll have you step into his clothes so that people that saw us get in the boat see me leaving with a man same build in my husband's clothes will take his car and dump it somewhere and uh maybe it'll get picked up and and driven somewhere so it'll look like like he just drove off or the car was stolen she has this whole story about him uh falling in love with another woman like she has all that if not fully planned out she jumps to it really quickly
1: well well actually it's the police the 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 detective lieutenant detective detect, detective well the detective who comes to that apartment to talk to her gives her the idea that there's another woman mm. she doesn't come up with it herself
0: yeah okay so there's improvisation she's got going on you're right but she also just like immediately knows what to do to how to how to make it look like well there's an alibi she knows how to like talk to people as like, oh, he just went to the store, keep an eye out for him or like make sure that people see her in the car with Danny or leaving with Danny so that it looks like she's with Alan who is dead at the bottom of Westlake now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but she, she, yeah, she must have had a, an idea that this is what she was gonna, going to do because otherwise like she, those plans come to her really quick.
1: Yeah, she thinks really well on her feet. Whether, and no, no matter how much planning she's done, she thinks really well on her feet. But the thing is, every, you, you're right about everything that, she, that, she, that she's done, but his sister is suspicious almost from the get-go. She suspects Jane of something.
0: Yeah, because Jane on that first night, like when she gets back to the apartment and the sister lives across the hall. She right. goes. She goes and tells the sister, "Like, hey, Alan's gone to the liquor store to get we're out of whatever." And uh, why don't you come over for a nightcap? And that's also that she'll have somebody there as the night goes on, and she gets worried about Alan. So it looks like somebody will see her behaving like a worried uh, wife, a wife worried about their missing husband. And uh, what's the the sister is what is (laughs) Kathy okay so this is the sister Kathy gets suspicious right away because after only like there's a time where where Jane starts going oh where is he he's been gone for so long something's happened I just know it and Kathy's like relax it's been half an hour (laughs) like so clearly she's like well you can see that click in her she's like well she's acting worried why is she acting worried now and uh And then, of course, she notices like, hey, why did he go there to get more alcohol? You have a fully stocked bar. So. Right. uh, And then, you know, then uh, uh, Dawn Blake comes in later. But like this movie. As much as the dark corner kind of had a light and fun tone to it to, to even out the darker noir elements. Too Late for Tears is almost as dark as it gets like. It, you know, it's 1949, so you don't see a lot of the unsavory stuff, but the implication is really clear, and and sometimes more than just an implication. Like there's, like you said, where um, Danny threatens to rape her, and then there's a scene like right after their first meeting, when she seduces him a little bit. They just kiss. They're not going to show too much, Um, and they agreed and they hatch this plan a little bit like she agrees to share the money with him. And just before he leaves, he hits her like right in the face. And she's like, what was that for? And he's like, that, that's just to remind you you're in a tough racket now. And then he leaves and like at this point you, you're kind of thinking like, wow, this is the villain of the movie. This guy is, is going to be hounding them. This is kind of like a, a plot point I like in a lot of noir not, or neo-noir of People finding money from the wrong, like dangerous money, like a simple yes. plan or no country for old men. Um, it's not noir, but Danny Boyle did a version of this. It, it was kind of a family Christmas movie called Millions. That's really that's one. Of, that's a really fun movie. But it's about these kids that find this uh, th- this bag full of stolen cash that was thrown from a train. Uh. Anyway, I, it's a it's a <laughs> a trope I really like. Um, but this movie, man, like you. Oh, I, I I forgot where I was going, but now I remember. Uh, I'm talking too much. I know, but you, that's
1: you okay. Think, no, no, you make, make very good points.
0: You think Danny is like the the villain of the movie because he he comes on so strong and he's so forceful and vile right from the get go that as the movie goes on, he starts to get he starts to become afraid of Jane. And he's like, he's like, I don't want to do any of this anymore. Count me out. And that, but she's like, kind of like drags him along and has him implicated in some other stuff, up to murder, like it gets to murder. And he's like, nope, I don't need this money that much. I don't want to go to like the chair. I'm not going to go to the chair for $60,000. Um, and she's like, she's the one that kind of drives everything. Like, like Lucille Ball in the last movie, but a much darker version of it. She kind of drives everything. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, but, but, you know in, a, in a small way, there is some sympathy for her because, at least I thought there was, when, at, when Alan, after they have the money, they've taken it home, and Alan is worried that it's changing them he is like such a nice guy in this movie. <laughs> he's like the only, he and his sister, they're just such nice people. And um, he's afraid that it's, ch- you know, changing the both of them. And she's, Jane says very honestly to him, I haven't changed at all. Alan, I've always been like this. And she tells the story about how she always felt like she never had enough money or family never had enough money and she always wanted more. I mean, it goes back, even though she's greedy and she's taking something that isn't hers she's you know it's such a deep-seated need because it goes all the way back to childhood she's lived with this for so long and it's hard not to have a little bit of sympathy for her at least at the beginning
0: yeah I I, I agree with you I agree a lot for a lot of this movie I had sympathy for her especially because in the beginning you kind of have that doubt like well she might have not meant to kill her husband and but then by the time like you see how she is manipulating danny and she's she's gonna try and kill him like there's a point where she's like we buried the money let's go out to it and like she's got her gun ready to to shoot him and he he kind of like starts to get an inkling of what's gonna happen and he's like that's it i'm leaving i don't care uh you didn't bury this money and um and then you you know you hear about her previous husband who uh, killed himself and Don Blake has kind of a, a pretty cruel, cruel summation of that where he's like, well, all this time I've never believed my brother could have killed himself but now that I met Jane, I'm not too sure <laughs> and it's like, holy cow <laughs> you're right that you I, I felt sorry for her in the beginning of the movie by the end I don't because it, I kind of found found her to be the female version of the hero from uh, hero from uh, Detour.
1: Oh, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because the, because I listened to um, you had a, a previous episode that featured Detour, and I've yeah. seen the movie. And uh, I think you and your guest mentioned how dark that film is. And it might be even a little bit darker than Too Late for Tears, but Too Late for Tears will match it, I think, almost frame for frame. And it's just...
0: uh... Yeah, I think Too Late for Tears is so cleanly made and brightly lit that, I mean, it it does kind of look... It has the look and professionalism that kind of... uh, it doesn't reach the griminess that Detour gets for me because Detour is just so like shondily lit and everybody is so sweaty and dirty. And um, <laughs> Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah, it's true. It, it's such a, yeah. But oh, what I, oh, go ahead and finish. Sorry, I interrupted.
1: Um, no, I think I, I made the point that, oh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I actually, I think Detour is a little grimier in, um, however, too late for tears is she's pretty. She's pretty desperate. The thing is, she seems a little bit a little bit closer to the American Dream than um, was it Tom. I, I know the actor's name is Tom Neal, but the star.
0: it's Al. Yeah, Tom Al, Neal. was right. yeah.
1: Al, Tom Neal is the is this, is the name of the character?
0: I know the actor is Tom Neal.
1: Okay, and Al is the name of the. I'm getting them confused because I haven't seen yeah. it that recently but but he, um, he's he's not even close he's, he's it's just a, a long slog even when they're in the nightclub and they have jobs it, you know it's a long slog of a work day he's a long slog out to California it's a long, long slog back to Nevada but Jane Jane gets close. You know, she has the money she makes it to Mexico she's enjoying herself for a while anyway. And she and Alan start off, I, I mean, that's a glorious apartment that they're living in.
2: Yeah, It's yeah. large
1: <laughs> for the two of them and um, very well appointed. <laughs> and, and so she's a, a little bit closer to it. But the thing about the, I, I wanted to make one point about the American dream. I, I guess the other reason I had some sympathy for her was this is a, a post-war film. The, uh, the United States has just been a victor is in the in world war ii things are about you know the depression's over things are about to change uh people are much more optimistic but i think like any period if you lived in those times she and you were like jane palmer living in post-war america you you were hearing that great things were coming but they took so long and I just bring this up again, but it's sort of like the pandemic. Everything is just taking so long. Why can't it just be over already? It's already been a year. And and she probably felt the same way. Here it is. The war was over in 45. It's 49. And I'm still struggling to make it to, to the American dream that everybody else is talking about.
0: I yeah. That, that that's completely true. This movie is like a lot of post. Well, like a lot of the noir films, it's about kind of the post-war hole in the center of uh if not the american dream than the american person or in more, most cases the american man um that there is something rotten inside everything and this is like this movie is more direct about that than a lot of noir about how like rotten the middle class american dream is it views that that whole post-war prosperity with no small amount of cynicism I think (laughs) like no small amount of skepticism yes Uh, but I what I wanted to say really quick about about why she reminds me of Al from Detour is there is a sense for a while since the movie is mostly her point of view there is a sense that she is unreliable as a narrator we can't believe anything she says about what her motivations are But she also kind of has this put upon, like, everything's kind of happening to me. This was an accident. I I just want this money and everything, like this bad stuff is happening around me. And if it wasn't for that, I'd be a good person. But it it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't. She's making these active choices and may have killed, well, definitely killed one, but may have killed two husbands.
1: Yeah, well, I think you're right. She doesn't end the movie on a sympathetic note, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but the the code is fulfilled. the The Hayes code is fulfilled because she's the one that takes the uh, what is it, a Brody, out the window? <laughs> yeah, out out the hotel window. So she she gets her comeuppance, and Don Blake doesn't even have to do any work, or Don Blanchard whatever name he's using at the end there he um he doesn't have to do any of the work to to see that she's uh given her due you know she she i, I forget how it happens but i guess she she backs away holding on to the money right and falls off accidental accidentally yeah
0: yeah she she falls off the balcony because he has um he has confronted her and says, I'm going to go get the police and tell them that you have the money. And right. She, a, she pulls a gun, and then a bunch of police storm into the room, and she starts to back up and trips over something and falls over the balcony.
1: Yeah. So um, so she she gets, I guess, what she deserves. Um, well, certainly yeah. according to the Hays Code, she gets what she deserves. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it it would have been interesting to see if we could rewrite the movie, if she had gone to trial. But if, they, if she had a trial, I think she would have gotten off somehow.
0: <laughs> uh, she may, if she could convince that jury.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, she's she was pretty good at convincing yeah. her husband, or at convincing Dami, um, at convincing herself. At the beginning of the movie, she's um, saying that, oh, you know, we could just put the money aside and we we won't think about it. Um, I I don't know whether that's an out and out lie or whether she really believes that she's not going to think about it, but she's out shopping like the next day. And she also tells her husband, oh, it was too dark. Nobody's ever going to see that license plate. Danny Fuller shows up and he saw the license plate and that's how he knows where they live. I I mean, I don't know whether she, she's really good at fooling herself too, in some ways, or, or either that, or she just was trying to lie to her husband.
0: Yeah. I think, I think though, everybody comes to see her for what what she really is, Uh, especially, uh, certainly Danny does. I think Alan is the only one who is consistently fooled. uh, Because Jane picks up on it, like immediately, that something is wrong that night. Uh, And Danny, Kathy,
1: Kathy, the sister, you mean?
0: Oh, did I say Jane?
1: Yeah, Kathy,
0: Kathy, the sister picks up immediately that there is something wrong and that Jane is acting suspiciously and has probably done something. And she's, she's not sure what, she's not even sure how big the something is, but it, there's something more. And she's starting to realize that Jane isn't what she says she is. Danny picks up on it pretty quickly, but he doesn't pick up to what extent, like she's will, what depth she's willing to go. Yeah. Because um, yeah. she makes him get poison to kill Kathy because Kathy has figured out what's going on and, or not, not specifically figured out, but she knows enough to maybe get them in trouble. And he doesn't want to, that's when he's like, no, count me out. I don't need the money this much, but then she has enough on him that he has to go along or serve jail time. But um, she gets the poison. There's a, there's a bit where they make a really big deal about how she just poured herself a glass of milk. And Don comes in and he's like, let's just put this back here in the fridge and you're going to come to dinner with me. And they, they mentioned the milk again later and they made a big show of them putting it back in the fridge that I was like, oh, okay, she's going to come in and poison the milk. And I don't think they're going to kill Kathy, but we're going to get a lot of like tension out of, is she going to drink this milk? Like she's going to pull it out and she's about to drink it or something like that, you know? but they don't do it. They never bring it back up again. I think there must've been something rewritten in the script because it seems so obvious. They were setting that up to be poison.
1: Or it was a MacGuffin. If yeah. That's even used. Then I don't know.
0: Yeah. I, I guess it, it could have, but it's a MacGuffin that doesn't ever pay off or even get, get to the point where you would expect a MacGuffin to be like, it's just as a as a film viewer you're looking at it going like i bet that's going to get poisoned later on but it i don't know uh, yeah it, it's it's weird i i do think maybe something got cut or they just weren't thinking about it
1: maybe may, maybe or oh, maybe it's sort of the same in a slightly different way kind of mirrors the situation with um her on the boat with her husband she doesn't she said, she tells danny that she th- thinks her sister-in-law is suspicious, but all along, maybe she always thought she was going to kill Danny or figure out a way to kill Danny. And that, it really is devious to make him go buy the poison.
0: Yeah, and then... Maybe, oh, go ahead.
1: And, and maybe that, that's why we're thrown off. You know, it's hard for anybody to believe that she would make him buy the poison and then kill him with it.
0: Well, the police come to the conclusion that it's suicide because he drank, he drank the whole thing. She made, they she made a drink and poured all of the poison in it. I don't know what it was, but it was the entire bottle. And he, he drank it and he died instantly, which yes. is, which is even, you know, more devious. Like, did she mean to use it on him? She ser- certainly set it up perfectly to look like a suicide. his, is that his girlfriend or the woman that's crying outside later, like after he died, and says that, like, oh, there was a deal that went wrong and he was out a lot of money and he's been really depressed about it. That kind of gives him the idea also that he committed suicide. I, I didn't know what their relationship was. I didn't catch it. Um,
1: um, I think she was a girlfriend. I never had the impression that they were exclusive.
0: Yeah, well, certainly not. <laughs> At least not not from Danny's point of view. Uh, yes. But uh yeah, it, it is like, it, it does get to a point where it's like, okay, these things aren't, like, you're planning these, you're, you're, your improvisation is so good that you must have been thinking about ways to kill people for a very long time.
1: She, she's so good with, the, with Danny's murder. She, not only does she pour, give him the poison, but she leaves the bottle in his suit coat. It was, it's just a quick little movement. But I noticed maybe I've just seen the movie so many times, but I noticed that she put the bottle in his suit coat. And that's another reason why they think it's yeah. suicide, because he he had it all along. And then the girlfriend confirms that he that she it seemed a little odd that <clears throat> she was with him when he bought it. Because I can't imagine that you would say to somebody, I, you know, I need to go out and buy some of this rat poison (laughs) you want to come with me i I mean that just seemed a little odd but you know just out doing errands on a saturday afternoon i guess that seemed a little odd a little contrived to me but they needed somebody to tell the story so she was the one
0: yeah i i also want to say about the cops when she calls the police uh Jane does with Kathy in the room to report a missing persons or to ask if it any like anything had turned up with about her husband, and it's that first night, and oh, she calls asking for missing missing persons, and the cop is like, oh, "It's after five; the missing persons department is closed." And I I can't I can't tell if that's actually something that would happen, like they wouldn't have a um, missing persons person on call or or there but then they're there all of the police explanations for why they won't search for him like oh we can't we can't do anything unless there's any suspicion of foul play we can't research any there investigate anything um i don't know what i'm saying i guess just lapd has always sucked <laughs>
1: <laughs> well actually i think it was a lot harder um several years ago meaning like decades, maybe, a couple of decades. But I I don't think it was that long ago that it was very, very difficult for people to get the police to investigate missing persons, including teenagers, because, um, you know, the usual refrain, like they must have just run away. I mean, if I were a parent and a police officer told me that, I'd be like, but that's pretty serious, you know? My child has run away. I need help looking for them. I mean, I just, I, I, I just think they didn't take it seriously enough, and things have started to change. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. It seemed really odd to me that um, she couldn't get any help that night. Um, I, I don't know that that would fly today. Those same reasons that they gave.
0: Yeah, the uh, doctors gave. They're, they're, the police were also just not helpful at all. Like this right after she knocks out Don at one point, she pulls a gun on Don and Kathy, and Kathy runs and calls the police. Right. And Dawn yeah. is left behind, and she comes back and he's unconscious. And the police arrive, and Don is sitting there, like nursing a, you know, a bruise or whatever on the back of his head. And telling the police, this, and the police are like, well, we can't do anything. She, isn't, she hasn't done anything. There's no, no reason to be suspicious of her and uh, what happened to her husband. And it's like, well, she just held the two of them at gunpoint and knocked him unconscious and ran. Like she basically admitted to, you know, being, uh, well, that there's foul play. Uh, she could, they could also have mentioned that she has the gun that was supposedly missing that he took with him. Uh, so it, it just seems like the police did not want to deal with this at all
1: <laughs> yeah i thought it was really odd when the when the the detective shows up remember he shows up and and jane and kathy are in the in the jane's and allen's apartment and i forget why kathy is there but but the, the police the detective whatever shows up and um that I found that that whole scene incredibly uncomfortable because, well, the the way it was set up. I, I, I'm not saying that I th- uh, that's the only way I know how to describe it, but I'll, let me describe the scene a little bit. That Kathy and and Jane never talk to one another. They never. They never talk about the fact that in that scene, that Alan, who's a husband and a brother, is missing. They they never commiserate with each other. At the beginning, Jane's, the the detective says something like, well, you know, you may want to talk about this alone. And Jane's like, well, this is his uh, sister. You know, naturally she can stay. And that's the extent of it. There's no feeling of commiseration or anything. The police officer gets a phone call from his precinct. He goes over to talk on the phone and Jane never moves over to talk to Kathy. She stands in front of the detective, just looking at the floor. It was the oddest, we, and maybe and because it's film noir, it was supposed to be that way, but I just thought the whole thing was really odd, weird. The the officer, I I, I forget exactly what he was doing there he didn't really give much information.
0: Uh, he, he said he was from missing persons and that they had gotten, like, he was checking up on, because she had called the precinct. So they did send somebody out. out. Oh, okay. He introduced himself by saying he was part of homicide. And she said, oh, dear, what, what's happened? Or, like, she said something about, like, oh, no, like, does that mean Alan's dead or whatever? And he's like, oh, oh, I, I get it. I know. I see why you'd be so worried. Homicide is in charge of missing persons, and so it's like, oh, okay. So the then that's he he goes and he gets the call that her uh, that Alan's car was found, right? But okay. down by the Mexican border, I think.
1: Okay, I, I wondered if that if that okay. So that's it. He I, I couldn't remember whether he came and told her that the car had been found or whether he got the phone call. That was the purpose of the phone call. Yeah. Um, because it seemed kind of odd to me that he got a phone call for no apparent reason. They were just checking up on something, you know, he gave out her number. It just, it just I don't know, it just seemed odd. The whole the the police just seemed kind of useless throughout the whole movie in a lot of
0: ways. Yeah, the most um, on top of it police are the Mexican police because they're there at the ready at that apartment in Mexico right? when when uh Jane gets her comeuppance. Yeah. <laughs>
1: takes no time at all but uh, of course Don has um alerted them that uh, what he's up to he he's told them that she's in the in the uh, oh, I guess the hotel suite where she's staying
0: yeah but he, he'd been alerting the LAPD as well
1: <laughs> yeah that's true you're right you're right though they did that much better job of they were very prompt and very well armed and there were more than I think there were three of them there there was more than one that came to her hotel room. They did a much better job. You're definitely right about that. Um, But I just was, I I don't know. I don't, I I, I guess I thought that they, especially that detective, they were typical of the time. Uh Like, what are you calling me for? You know, he's not really a missing person. You know, what are you making a big deal about this for? It's not a murder. It's a suicide when Don, you know, Don Blake shows up at the apartment where Dan, um, Danny's body is found. This is, you know, this, you're, you're making too much of this. It works well in this movie, actually. I mean, it, you know, I, I actually bought it because it, it, it works well in film noir and it especially worked well for Jane's, Jane's uh, plans, if you want to call them that.
0: Yeah, I yeah, it, she was very lucky, as well as you know, very smart. Even though you know, she did some stupid things, but like I probably wouldn't have done any better. But I wouldn't be thinking that way. I don't think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> she was something. I learned in when doing some research. I've written about this at movie more than once for my blog, and. uh, I remember doing when I was doing some research, I found out that the, when the movie was re, the movie was released under several names in the United States. Too Late for Tears, Killer Bait was another one. And in France, it was released as the tiger, La Tigresse. Oh. And I thought that was a brilliant name for the movie. I think even in French, it would have worked well in the United States because Danny Fuller calls her the tiger or t- just Tiger yeah. throughout the movie. And it's a perfect a perfect name for her. And it would have been a great ni- name for the movie, a movie title, I think, too. And I'm surprised no one came up with it because Killer Bait, I'm not very happy about. And Too Late for Tears, I mean, that's a great title for a film noir, but I didn't really think it worked for this particular one, really.
0: It, it only worked or it only doesn't work because Jane has no moment of regret that we see. Uh, (laughs) She like, there is, I thought like, oh, this, that's a good name for this movie because she's accidentally killed her husband and gotten herself in this. Like, I thought from the beginning, like for the first half hour or so, I thought the plot of this movie was going to be Jane gets in over her head through some stupid decisions. And now has to deal with these horrible people and all these things she's gonna to have to do just to stay ahead of the law and the criminals that are after the money. But instead, it was it was her wanting this money so bad. She is doing these things, not just like of her own accord, but she is actively pursuing, like she's like. You know, this is her plan, like kind of you know, this is what she wants to be doing. So I thought after for the first half hour, like too late for tears, that makes a good a good title for this type of movie. And then after a while, I'm like, mm, well, not really, because she's she's not going to be crying about it. She's she just is trying to get that money and doesn't care about anything else.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, I, I don't know whether um Elizabeth Scott meant to portray Jane Palmer the way she did. But when going back to that scene where Jane and Kathy are in Jane's apartment and the detective comes to talk to them, the two of them seemed wooden with each other because, you know, Kathy is starting to suspect her. Jane senses that she's starting to suspect her. So they're not exactly on friendly terms, not anymore anyway. But I noticed that throughout the movie, Jane is not very emotional at all. She's um, kind of flat. There's like no affect to her, and I don't know whether it's. Um, I mean, I've seen Elizabeth Scott in other movies, but in this she's one, she's some thinking,
0: great ones too. <laughs> she's in great film noir.
1: Yeah, she she is really good. She's in a great movie called Pitfall with Dick Powell. That's another yeah, one.
0: that's what I was, I was going to.
1: Yeah. I really like Dick Powell in film noir. I think he's really good. And Elizabeth Scott is really good in in, in film noir. But in this particular one, and I, it worked well for this movie. I'm not saying there was, it was a bad choice or she should do it any differently. But I just noticed in this one, she just seemed to have no affect at all. And maybe that's why they chose the title Too Late for Tears. I mean, she never, you never get any imp- any inkling that she's ever going to shed any, any tears about anything. Yeah. Except maybe losing the money.
0: <laughs> yeah. That would
1: be the only thing.
0: Well, do you have anything more you want to say about uh, Too Late for Tears? Do you have anything in your notes?
1: Um, no, I wrote actually surprisingly very few notes. But I had a lot to say about it <laughs> anyway. It's such it's a great move. It's really one of my favorites. It's just so I think pairing it with detour would make a great discussion with somebody sometime.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe after I've been doing this a while and, and I'll go back to these and we'll do a, like a revisiting, I suppose. Yes. Another look. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, I'm, I'm kind of um, at the end of my notes as well, but I really enjoyed this movie. Like I said, I found it endlessly surprising. Like just the, it, it kept doing things I didn't, expect it to do. And uh I'm really glad I'm actually glad you're really I'm actually really glad you suggested both movies today. But this one I was like I was really kind of wowed by.
1: It. It's a it's definitely got a lot of wow factor,
0: that's for sure.
1: <laughs> Starting with Jane Palmer. She's a a force to be reckoned with.
0: Yes, yeah. Uh I, I was, ahead. no 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 you, you go ahead.
1: No, I think I think actually I was pretty much finished. I mean, I could talk forever about this movie. It's it's just wonderful. I I, I mean, I can't recommend it enough. It's like, you know, you said yesterday or, or earlier in this podcast that, uh, the dark corner is a quintessential noir, but you know, this one is too, maybe more thoroughly noir. I, I mean, I don't, I think a lot of film critics call the dark corner quintessential noir because I've read that before when you, when you talked about that, um, I I remember hearing that and and a lot of film noir aficionados call it that, but, um, and I happen to really like it myself, but I'm surprised that they don't pick something else as a
0: quintessential noir. What I meant by that was by quintessential noir is, I mean, it didn't have a femme fatale, but it had all of the story beats that you want out of a film noir. It had like the, it had the twisty plot. it had the lighting, the shadows, uh, the tortured hero, the two-fisted dialogue, um, the detective, you know. And it, it had every, every element that you kind not every element, but most major elements that you want out of a film noir. and it did them well. I think "Too Late for Tears" is a better movie. I mean, I, maybe I—I I don't really always like comparing, but I—I—I I, I think "Too Late for Tears" is definitely a noir, like emphasis on noir. It's dark. Uh, but I think I—I I just think um, "The Dark Corner" was kind of like this is a really good example. It is not as dark, it is not as twisty, it is not as existential, it is not as um, uh, mysterious as other noir films, but it is a good example of the genre, like, kind of like a, you know, a platonic ideal of the genre, almost.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I it's it's just, it, it is one of my favorites, I I probably like it more. Than most film noir aficionados, but I could be wrong there. Oh. Um, I just I don't know why I like it so much, but I but but I do. But I also like Too Late for Tears an awful lot, and and the twists and the surprises. The first time I saw the film, I just couldn't stop watching it. You know, it's 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 one surprise after another, and I love that when that happens because you know it just keeps you totally engaged. I think in the in a film that just is and this and too late for tears is definitely one of those considering that I've watched so much film more just one just really it, it always blows me away it's just so good
0: <laughs> all right well uh that will we'll let that be our for now final statements on the th- on the topic uh we're going to take just a really quick break we'll be right back and we'll uh, we'll do a little wrap up for the show All right, and we're back, and we've only got a, a few minutes left here on the show, but, um, you know, I, we've talked about how noir is such an expansive topic, and there's, there's way too much to talk about, <laughs> or, you know, way too much in the topic to, to kind of discover in just two movies, so um, I figure right now we'll ask Marianne, what are some of your other favorites? What, what other movies do you think people should check out? If they, it maybe if they like these, or uh, even if they Well,
1: no, like I actually have a couple, uh, a couple of neo noirs that are my favorites, and a few film noir that are also favorites. Uh, one of my another favorite film noir of mine is Born to Kill with Lawrence, is it Tierney? He, uh, that's a movie that's full of surprises. And um another one that I like a lot—it's the kind of film that I've seen more than once, and each time I see it, I see more and more in it. It's *The House of Strangers* with Edward G. Robinson and Richard conti That's a good one.
0: Wow, and, you're you're two for two with movies I have not seen yet.
1: Really? Oh, those are two. So, but *Born to Kill* is really—that's almost a shocker that's <laughs> really good and considering that it was done in the 40s um, yeah it's a shocker um, you had mentioned uh, you like movies where that where or film noir where people get money and they don't and they get into trouble because it's from it's not theirs and it's um obtained through dubious ways side street is another example of that uh, that farley granger is in that that's a great movie too but one of my favorite neo-noirs is Marlowe, uh, starring Phil, uh, James Garner as Philip Marlowe. I actually think James Garner makes the best Philip Marlowe.
0: Oh, a bit more better than Dick Powell?
1: Oh, well, okay. Okay. Well, we're talking neo-noir, though, now. Yeah, I,
2: yeah.
1: Okay, so we can give them both, you know, the crown for two different types of film i guess but uh he is really good i think in in that film
0: well i i have not seen that one yet but i do love james garner
1: oh yeah i i think he's uh he's great actually i i like him in his dramatic roles i know he does comedy too but yeah he's good are you going to offer any suggestions or are you just at
0: Oh, no, I I was kind of, I was kind of just interested to hear what you, because people are going to be hearing me the rest of the summer talking about, you know, what I like. So I I just kind of was interested in hearing what you had to say or what movies you wanted to talk about.
1: Okay. Oh, and The Big Heat, of course, with Glenn Ford. Can't forget that.
0: Yeah, that movie. I, I. I. No, you don't like it? I like it a lot. But there is a a moment of violence in that movie, or just a plot contrivance that I have issues with. And it's it's the dead wife that his wife is killed. And I kind that's like a trope I don't always really appreciate I don't I don't I'm not too fond of like the hero's wife or Or girlfriend or love interest is brutalized in order to you know make it personal for him. And in that one, it also felt like, or not felt, but it just made me feel bad because they've got the daughter as well who who isn't told right for a while. Um, That that I don't know. Maybe that's the intent that they were going for. And if so, like congratulations to them. I I just. I, I'm not too sure. Like, I love everything in that movie. I'm just not sure how I feel about that.
1: I'm going to have to see it again. Because am I not? It, am I
0: thinking of the wrong movie?
1: No, no, no. Uh, but I thought that he was already starting to investigate corruption. And that's why she was killed. As oh, yeah,
0: he, he was. Oh, okay. He was, but it, it made it personal for him. Okay. And oh, it turned oh. it into like a vendetta. And, and I, um, I just, I kind of don't like that. Which, which, to be fair, that you know, 1953, we we've we recognize that now more as a as a trope more than they would have then. It it wouldn't have been like it wouldn't have been seen as just a, a trope. But uh, yeah, I still I still just don't like that one aspect of it.
1: Huh? I I thought it worked pretty well, but I. I'd have to see it again. I I, I don't know. That's an interesting point.
0: I, I I I trust me, I love everything else about that movie. It, it is it is a, a four-star movie in my in my eyes. I, I I think it is terrific, but I just I that part that one part bums me out. And that's it's just personal. I don't know.
1: You're, you're allowed. <laughs> that's a lot. That's the whole point of talking about Phil Noir. It's all you know personal and our opinions and um
0: but i don't want people to think i'm like ragging on the movie i also i co-sign this recommendation it's great
1: <laughs> it is it's a good movie um, but i could you know talk about a million movies i suppose but th- those are the ones that i that uh fallen angel actually with with uh dan we can't forget dana andrews that's he's another big one
0: Let me see, i'm trying to think if i've seen that one with with
1: linda darnell
0: uh, I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. Okay, you've got a long list here. I do. <laughs> like You're like, you are the right guest to have on for this. Oh, my gosh. We are going to have to have you back. Oh, that'd be good. Did you have any others that you wanted to mention?
1: You mean for uh, films or? Yeah, yeah. Questions. Oh, gosh. How about, well, the guilty, I put that, I think I... Had offered that as a suggestion. That's a neo noir, though. That's um, that's a Danish film.
0: Oh, the that's, yeah, that one I I hadn't seen that either, but I was kind of like looking into a, uh when you mentioned the others. But it's just it, yeah.
1: It's 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 actually kind of a throwback to film noir. It takes place. It's an amazing movie. I'm not going to say too much about it because if you do decide to see it, it's I thought it was amazing. Um, it's possible you might find it boring, but I I don't think so. And have you ever seen Wind River with uh, Jeremy Renner?
0: Yes, yeah, I've seen that.
1: That I consider that a neo noir. It's kind of a neo western noir, but um,
0: yeah, I, I get I, I I would agree.
1: It's I think it's a great film. It's a brutal film in a lot of ways, but you know that scene where she's raped is. I don't think I've ever watched it from beginning to end. I mean, I've seen the movie several times, and I can watch a little bit of it, different parts of it each time I see it. But I probably will never see it from beginning to end. Really, it's a little too brutal for me. But um, but it's yeah. a good one.
0: I I agree. But it, it I uh yeah I like that one. But I agree, it was a little bit m- much for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's sometimes that happens with. Uh, more recent films more often than, um, than of course with film noir because they had the code, but um, back in the day, but The Guilty, I'll tell you a little, just this, he plays, it's a police officer who's a um, first responder, no, not a first responder, he's a police officer, but because he's in trouble, something he's done, he answers phones for emergencies, I forget what you call that it's not a first responder
0: oh uh nine one, What up just yeah, yeah
1: yeah and he gets a phone call from a woman and then he gets a phone call from the woman's husband and all the events play out you never see them you never meet the two people in fact i'm not even sure you ever leave the room where he's working but it works because you have to imagine all the events. At least I did, I did it. So it makes you do all the work and it just kept me enthralled. (laughs) It was, it's so different. It it really was really good. I I liked it a lot, but I thought it it was a really, it really recreated a film war world because it's very low budget, There are only a few actors, two or three actors that actually make an appearance on the screen. it really is good. But it could be considered boring by some people. I don't know. I hope I piqued your interest in that one because that's a good one.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's so many here. And definitely, I I want you to come back, hopefully before this summer is over. Or maybe I'll I'll do this whole thing again sometime. But uh, before we go, uh, tell people about make mine film noir where can people find you and what's uh well just tell people about it
1: (laughs) well you can google it with uh, on make mine film noir and find it i don't have the uh url right in front of me but it's uh on blogger blogspot.com and i've been doing uh writing about film noir since the end of our uh, the summer of darkness in 2015. I started the blog soon after the class in September, 2015. And I post about every two weeks. Um, I have to admit, I don't limit myself to film noir, neo-noir, I sometimes branch out into noir literature um, every once in a great while. Uh, and I especially like it when I find, which I did recently, I found um, The High Window by Raymond Chandler and two film adaptations of it from the 1940s. One was Time to Kill and um, The Brasher Bloom. So that was a lot of fun. But um, gosh, film noir is a passion for me. So I, I hope to keep doing it for a while.
0: Yeah, uh, everybody should go check it out. That, that URL is make mine film noir. blogspot.com and uh, go check it out there's a lot of stuff i see that when you were just talking about the brasher doubloon that's your latest post um i was very interested in watching that movie after seeing this post so i will uh i will be on the lookout for that um and and if you're listening i'll put posts or i'll post links on any of our socials, which is uh, where you can find me if you want. I am on Instagram and Twitter, at Two-Headed Pod. There's also a Facebook page you can find, Incredible 2 Head Podcast. Anyway, yeah, drop me a line if you want. Uh, Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, Reviewing really does help. If you're listening out there, please uh, leave us a review. It helps in our standings and gets the word out to other people who might be interested in listening. Um, Otherwise, I think that's gonna do it for this week. We'll be back next week with another uh, film noir double feature.